spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Better than a trip to purgatory on a revenant rampage. This is episode 178 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and just for a couple minutes, I wanted to talk about the finale of Winona Earp for season two that happened last Friday. And man, there was just so much going on in that episode, including one of the most badass moments I think ever. When you see Winona and you see Doc kind of standing one in front of the other in front of the sisters, and you really think that they might face off, and that the only choice is to shoot Winona and for Winona to shoot Doc, and then the bullet splits and it gets the sisters, I'm like, man, Melanie Scrifano and Tim Rozon just had one of the most badass moments on television in 2017 period. How great was that? And great job by Emily Andros and Bo Smith and everyone involved in the writer's room on that singular moment alone. But this season of Wine Owner, or season two, while it was a really good season, it was still so hard for me to watch because the first season was so, so fun. And just follow me on this. It's not a criticism. It was so hard to watch because it was so much more serious stuff, I felt like, in this season. And everything going on with the baby and is it Doc's or is it not? And when Waverly crosses the line, we don't know if she has Revenant blood either. And everything going on with Way Hot and them kind of being at odds throughout the season. There was so much serious stuff. And you've fallen in love with these characters through season one. You just kind of wanted it to be a warm blanket wrapped around you like everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And then it kind of was at the end. And then, spoiler alert, by the way, at the end when she says, Mom, I'm like, what? No. So bravo to everyone involved with Winona Earp on another successful season. Looking forward to season three. Hopefully you're looking forward to this week's show. As a matter of fact, we'll have the cast members of Batman Harley Quinn, the animated movie that came out from Warner Brothers in DC this week. That's right, I'll talk to Kevin Conroy, I'll talk to Lauren Lester, who plays Nightwing, I'll talk to Bruce Tim, Paget Brewster, Kevin Michael Richardson, a lot of the cast members of this movie, and we'll break down. I'll even give you my quick spoiler review of that right at the end of the interview, like I did last week with The Tick and Griffin Newman. I'll give you my spoiler-filled thoughts this time in that movie. Speaking of spoilers, I'll have my spoiler-filled review of the Death Note movie from Netflix coming up. What did I think of that? A ton of nerd news and a lot more, so let's get to it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Griffin Newman from The Tick, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab your long box, your laptop, your tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and it's one of those rare fifth Wednesdays, so not a ton of books coming out, but definitely some good ones. How about this? Image Comics' Black Magic Number no. 7, which is written by Greg Rucka. Nicholas Scott does the art. Shiara Arena does the colors, and Jody Wynn does the letters. This has always been one of my favorite series because there's just something about Rowan Black that I love. And just the way that Rucka and Scott portray magic in this book, it's one of those books that doesn't throw magic in your face all the time. You know it's there. You know it can be used. You know what Rowan is capable of if you've been reading this series before, but it's not up there in your face. And I love that it's more of a personal story about Rowan and about Alex and about the other characters involved here. So basically where this issue picks up is there is the group that is kind of investigating, trying to find out what's going on with their, I guess, evildoers is the best way that I could possibly describe them. So they're kind of hot on Rowan's tail, and Rowan has got a lot on her plate. One of the things that I think we're learning in this second arc of Black Magic is that Rowan is kind of burning the candles at both ends at this point. She's got her job as the detective. She's kind of now fully embraced her life as a witch, and she's kind of playing both sides of it and trying to keep it quiet from the folks at the police station too, by the way. So she's really burning the candle both ends. You see her at one point in this book, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but you see her at one point in this book where she's delaying her police job because of something that has to do with her life as a witch. And it seems like 
her partner definitely knows something's going on. That, that much I will say. I won't spoil anything, but you can see that that relationship's starting to get strained, and it's and it takes its toll on Rowan. You can just tell that there's this huge weight on her shoulders, but when it comes to Alex, it, just that relationship, it's so, so close, and she will do anything. And we know this already to protect Alex. And if you've been reading the book, you know what happened to Alex in the last issue. So there's they deal with the fallout from that. And actually just kind of the beginning of dealing with the fallout from what happened to Alex. And again, I won't spoil anything just in case you haven't read the last issue either. So as we go along, of course, you know that Rowan and Morgan are having a uh, the Dundridge investigations going on right now. They're not really getting anywhere with that. So that's also frustrating. And that seems to be the main theme of this book is frustration with Rowan's partner, with Rowan herself, with Alex. Everybody has their own little piece of something that they have going on, but yet it all comes back to Rowan. And that's why, and this is what I love about Nicola Scott's art. You can see that in Rowan's face at different points of the issue, no matter what she's doing, you can see the raw emotion on her face and at times that overwhelming emotion on her face. And that's what made Greg Ruck and Nicola Scott so great on the Wonder Woman run. That's what they brought to Diane and Wonder Woman. So you've got another strong female character here in Rowan Black, and it just seems like this combination of Greg, Greg Rucka and Nicola Scott know how to bring strong female characters to the forefront and really make you feel for them. But, it's, but at times they also remind you that, remember, Rowan Black is a strong woman and she can handle these things because you see there's a panel with her and Alex where her mood very much changes. And I love that. It's like, okay, yeah, she's going through a lot. You feel bad for her. But remember, she's still rolling black, and she can still deal with this. And then as we head towards the end of the book, you find out that, yep, somebody's going to be hot on her trail, and it's going to be very interesting to see how she deals with that. But this book, there's just something about it that ever since the very beginning in the first issue, I've just loved it so much. I always look forward to this book. I love the fact that we get black and white throughout most of the book, unless there's fire, and then you get or some magic, you get some colors there. But it's just such a gorgeous book to look at. It's such a good story. It almost feels like you're you're experiencing it more than you're actually reading it, and I think that's one of the best compliments I can pretty much give beyond the fact that I think Nicholas Scott is the best, if not one of the best, the best artist in the business today period. The detail that she puts into absolutely everything in the books that she works on. I mean, it's 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 almost second to none. She's just so phenomenal. And I know that uh, having talked to him in the past, Greg Rucka would certainly agree with that. This is a pull for me. It always has been. And it probably always will be. I just love Black Magic. And I can't wait to get my hands on the next issue because I, I have a feeling that this next issue coming up, issue eight, is going to be where things really, really start to rev up and get super, super interesting. Now, with that being kind of towards the middle of its arc, let's go to something that had its fourth and final issue from Valiant Comics. Of course, it's Rapture number 4, written by Matt Kent. Cafu, Juan Jose Reap, and Francis Portella do the art. Andrew Dollhouse does the colors, and Dave Sharp does the letters. I won't spoil anything about the conclusion of this book, but of course, you you know, you've got Tama, you've got Ninjak, you've got Punk Mambo, and Shadow Man, and of course they ran into Rex the the Razor as well. They're in the dead side, trying to stop Babel from crossing over into the live side. Now, I talked about strong women a couple minutes ago in Black Magic. I love what Matt Kent is doing with Tama, the geomancer in the story. They are really building her up to not only be a very important character going forward in the Valiant Universe, but they're also building her up to be this strong female character at such a young age. The way that she almost seamlessly seems to be able to go through and solve the things that need to be solved and just know based on the book of the Geomancer what she needs to do and she has no fear and she just does what needs to be done. It's it's almost second nature to her already at such a young age and it's so, so important to see that. But of course we also have... Shadow Man. This book is very centered around Shadow Man and Jack, and their relationship actually is very, very important in this story. And of course, you've got the battle of, does Shadow Man want to give up his Loa? Does he not? Is Babel going to help him? Is he not? Well, we know he's not because he is the main antagonist in the story, but Shadow Man is so desperate 
to be free. And we've known that for a while. If you read Valiant, you know that Shadow Man is desperate to be free. And that's kind of where the last issue left off. And we deal with the decision that he makes is the huge basis of this fourth issue. And I, again, without spoiling anything, it's really hard for me to tell you a whole lot of details on this book, but just know that it very much centers around the decisions that Shadow Man makes and how much Tama just grows up throughout these, this four-issue arc. I mean, she already has had a whole lot of, a lot of heavy stuff on her plate anyway. So it, this is definitely something that she can handle, but at, at point, there's a point where it gets next level for her, and she just doesn't miss a beat, and I love that. Now, there is an epic, I mean, unbelievable action sequence in the middle of this book. It is a battle that... You kind of probably hoped would happen if you were reading this series anyway. You are kind of hoping with the Shadow Man and Babel back and forth that you would get this. And again, I'm, I want to shout it so bad and just tell you what it is, but I don't want to spoil this book for you because I want you to see it for yourself. The battle that you wanted to happen in issue three happens in issue four. So if you're already reading this book, that much I can tell you. And, you know, of course, Ninjak plays a very important role in this and, and how things progress towards the end of this book and the finale. We do get a nice conclusion to this arc, which I love. They don't leave you hanging. But at the same time, one thing Valiant does so, so well with their books, and I w- I'm going to call this a main story arc. Uh, it's not really a huge group arc, but it kind of is because we are told by one of the characters that another character is going to be very, very important in saving lives going forward. So you can tell that this will definitely have repercussions past this four-issue arc. But Valiant does so well is connect everything that they do without making it seem forced. It's like, okay, they have the option to go back and reference what happened in Rapture, or they don't. And at any point, they can pull this out and say, hey, remember what happened here? Well, because of what happened in Rapture... That's important now. I just love the fact that they can go to these things when they want to, or they cannot. The choice is theirs. And they and they tied up the loose ends in this absolutely perfectly. And I will say this. There is the very last page of this book. It, it just hit, you know, as the kids say, hits you in the feels. This one hit me right in the feels because it is such an innocent moment at the end of such a serious the world might end story. And the fact that everybody involved, Matt Kent and the editors, Warren Simons, everybody involved decided to circle back to this and have that moment. And again, I'm not spoiling it because I want you to see it and experience it if you've been reading this book. It's just such a touching moment at the end of the book and and it really makes you like a certain character even more. So Valiant, another home run on a limited run series. Just beautiful art throughout everyone involved in the art. That's just Valiant now. I just expect great art from Valiant at this point. I I don't open a Valiant book and think I'm not going to get good art. And Matt Kent kind of becoming the architect of the Valiant Comics universe. Another amazing job weaving so many different characters and just making them work seamlessly. This is another pull for me. It's a fifth Wednesday, but it's been a good fifth Wednesday because a couple of great books came out this week. That'll do it for what we're reading up next. My spoiler-filled review of the Death Note movie is here on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is Warren Simons, the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Just in time for Back to School, grab your notebooks, boys and girls, but be careful what name you write in it because it's time for my spoiler-filled review of Death Note on Netflix. Of course, it is the adaptation of the anime and the manga series that's been going on for a long time now, and I just want to put this right out there before I start with this review. I'm not going to address the casting controversy. We've talked about casting controversies and whitewashing controversies on the show many, many times before. You can go back and find out my opinion on what those are in past shows. So I don't want to bog this review down with that. I'm also not going to talk about the source material. I'm not going to talk about how close it is to the source material because I purposely 
avoided that because I wanted to give this review just a, as a standalone movie that was on Netflix that was based on a comic or a manga or an anime, whatever you're a fan of, of Death Note. Plus, when the creators gave their seal of approval, that's when I said, okay, I'm just going to push it off to the side and I'm going to treat this as a standalone Netflix movie, a Western adaptation of an anime manga series. So with that in mind, I'm going to continue now. Of course, in case you're not familiar with the story, it follows Light Turner, who is a high school student, and he's he's the stereotypical gets bullied, smart kid, does the homework for the football players and stuff like that until he comes across the Death Note. Now, just a quick little bit on the Death Note in case you haven't seen the movie. The Death Note, first of all, has a lot of rules. Second of all, the basics of the Death Note is you write a name in it, you write how they're going to die, and that person will die within the, I think it's the next 30 or 40 seconds, unless you write more information in there. There's a lot of rules in the Death Note, which I won't get into. And you have Ryuk, who's played by Willem Dafoe, who is the Death God, and of course, Light Turner, played by Nat Wolf. So you have this internal struggle with Light and what he wants to use the Death Note for. And then you enter Mia, who ends up being his girlfriend, Mia Sutton, who's played by Margaret Qualley. And they have this, okay, let's use the book for good. Let's get rid of, let's kill all the rapists and the child molesters and murderers and terrorists and stuff like that. So they think they're doing it for good. And actually, Light Turner uses the book. One of the first times he uses it is to avenge the death of his mother, from a gangster who sort of had the right connections and his family was rich and he walked so no one ever suffered for the murder of his mother. So that's how he used it one of the first times. The first time was to get rid of a bully. The second time was to get rid of someone who had murdered his mother. So then that enters his father, James Turner, who was a police officer, which I thought, you know, okay, kind of predictable a little bit. So you kind of see where that's going to go eventually once the investigation kind of starts. Now, one thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about this, and again, I mean, comment on this if you're listening and tell me if this is part of the source material. Once Light and Mia sort of get in there, what they think is a rightful killing spree, I guess is the best way I can put it. They, they give what they're doing a name. So they make the victims write the name Kira in Japanese because they want to give it a name. They want people to know that they're doing this for the side of right or that they're doing this for the right cause. And I kind of had a problem like like that. I'm like, really? Because right there, that's a red flag of you guys are going to get caught. It's like, really, guys? But then I thought about it. I'm like, okay, this is these are high school students that we're talking about. So you're already talking about not the, you know, even if they're smart high school students, which light is, it's not necessarily, they're not going to make the right decisions because they are teenagers. So once I thought about it, I kind of let that go. So once that goes through, of course, there's an eventual investigation and you bring in the mysterious L who's played by Lake at Stanfield, who did a wonderful job, by the way. We find out he is this detective that's been bred since he was younger to be a great detective. And that was one of the kind of twists in the movie that you find out when he when he finally tries to get him out of the way a little bit later on and then you have the eventual investigation while the FBI is getting on our tail so now we have to think about getting rid of them and it just kind of snowballs out of control and then you have their relationship meaning Light and Mia's also spiraling out of control because they have very very different views on what to do and as I'm going through this movie all I can think is man if they had just slowed this down a little bit and focused in more on the very, very beginning of him getting the death note, I think that would have been better. And again, as someone who's not familiar with the source material, I just felt like throughout this entire movie, once you got past that initial wave, it's like, man, they just seem to be rushing to get right in the middle of something. As a matter of fact, there's a part in the movie where Light and Mia first get together and they first start their their quest, as it were. Where it's almost like they, they, it's, you know, there's in those old uh, romantic comedies or in comedies in the 80s when two people finally get together and you have that scene where they, where they have sex. And then there's this musical montage of them like getting ice cream together and running through parks and laughing, but you can't hear the laugh because the music is playing. They did that, but it was for them picking people that they wanted to kill. And I'm thinking, so you're fast forwarding this movie with a musical montage. Uh, of the of the boyfriend and the girlfriend 
just sort of going through this killing spree sort of thing. So it just felt like the, you didn't need to rush. There were so many things that you could have focused on. And you certainly could have given us more Ryuk from Willem Dafoe, who is awesome. And Jason Lyles as well, by the way, who was the guy in the suit who did the actual movements of Ryuk, who actually, if we want to get into that for a second, I thought the look was really cool. I thought it looked practical. We never really got an up-close, really, really good look at Ryuk. We did maybe a couple of times, but not floor-to-ceiling. Because, I mean, eight foot tall, very, very menacing. As a matter of fact, the first time that they meet, that high-pitched screech of a cry that Nat Wolf lets out, the kind of like the girlish scream, not to put a stereotype on it, but the girlish scream that he had was so funny. No, it wasn't supposed to be funny in that moment, but I cracked up when I heard that for the first time. So, Nat Wolf, bravo to you for that. So, when they, when they first meet, you kind of felt like there would be a little bit more of, okay, he's learning the rules or maybe he's going to be more deliberate in his choices of how he's going to use this. Or maybe there will be a point where he decides, eh, maybe I shouldn't use this. And even when Mia gets involved, it almost feels like if you'd pump the brakes on this a little bit, there's so much more that you could have explored. And I know that I just said it felt like they were trying to cram stuff in, but if you went long form with this, it almost feels like you could have told a little bit better of a story and not to say that I didn't enjoy it as a whole, but it's like, okay, you gave me all of this, but I would have gladly waited for like when L comes in or once the dad finally starts connecting the dots kind of thing. I, I could have waited for all that. And even the relationship between light and his dad, James Turner, which was very, very much in flux in the beginning with light thinking that James didn't do anything to help his mom after she died and, and to bring the killer to justice. You could have let that relationship drag out a little bit more and it would have been maybe a little bit more satisfying. So I did feel like as a whole, this thing might've been a little bit rushed. And I also kind of felt like maybe this would have been a better series than it was a movie. Because if you break this up and then right at the end of the first season, that's when L comes in to the investigation or maybe right before the first season ends, you give me L coming into the investigation. And once he realizes that light is Kira, then that's where the first season ends. And then I'll wait for the second season. I know they've said they were going to think about doing a sequel and they would do it, but you've given me so much now that I, I, I am interested in a sequel, but not as much as I would have been had you stopped it a little bit earlier. And again, I didn't want this to necessarily be shorter. And I know it certainly would have been longer, but I think it could have given them maybe time to dive in more. And maybe we could have gotten more scenes of light finding out more about Ryuk and what's going on there. And maybe their little friction starts a little bit earlier than it does in this movie. You could have got to that a little bit faster. So I just think that maybe the choices that were made of how fast or how slow to go with things. Maybe they they didn't stretch certain things out enough, but at the same time they got to certain things a little bit too quickly is the best way that I can possibly describe it. As far as individual performances go, I thought that there was a lot of good ones. I thought Nat Wolf did a very good job as Light Turner. I thought Shea Wiggum did a good job as James Turner. Willem Dafoe, it's hard not to love Willem Dafoe. There were just so many good individual character performances, I thought, that, and, and there were also times where... I legitimately was on the edge of my seat, like the scene in the Ferris wheel. You kind of know how that's going to work out, but at the same time, I'm still on that pins and needles of, okay, what exactly did he write in the book when he was in the cafeteria, and how is this going to play out? And then we do get that answer. But, I mean, there were genuinely times where I was interested, and I was one of those things where I was looking at my phone or I was looking away. I was genuinely interested and what was happening, and I think that, that for a movie, that's all you kind of really ask. I just, it's almost like I wanted more and was disappointed that I didn't get more in-depth information than I actually got. So if that's the criticism, that's the one I can give is that I wished I'd gotten a little bit more. And that's not to say everybody's performances were stellar because they absolutely weren't. There were times where with uh, Lake Stanfield, who played L where I was thinking, man, he's doing such a good job. And then at the same time, I'm like, okay, this character, there's, I, I don't understand this character fully, especially towards the end. It's like, okay, what is he doing with that page of the death note? And can he really do anything about it once the page is ripped out? So, I mean, I was kind of hot and cold on that character, Watari. We didn't get really, really a whole lot on him either. So I was kind of hot and cold on that character as well. 
But as a whole, I actually thought it was a decent movie. Was it great? No. Was it decent? Yes. And would I watch the sequel? Sure, I'd watch the sequel. But again, I, I just find myself wishing that this was a series instead of a movie because I feel like it could have played out so much better as a series and could have given us so much more if they did that. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe the sequel is a series instead of a movie. And I'm not saying, you know, go go volume by volume on the manga or, or on anything else. I'm not saying do that. What I'm saying is, is that give me a little bit more information on the stuff that just feels like it matters more and don't rush through the stuff that feels like it matters. Give me more on certain things, but don't drag out others. And I know that that's maybe a choice that Adam Wingard made as the director, but again, not a bad movie, but not something I'm going to be rushing back to see again. So I'm going to go ahead and give this six mostly eaten apples out of 10. That's my spoiler filled review of death note on Netflix up next. You know there's a ton of nerd news, and we'll get to it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This might be a show about nerd stuff, but it wasn't long before we headed back to the courtroom because it's time for nerd news. And this one, I just shook my head when I saw it. So Hasbro has announced that they're going to sue DC Entertainment over the character Bumblebee saying they could be too easily confused. Now, the story, according to Variety, apparently the trademark lawsuit has been filed between, of course, Bumblebee, the Transformer that you know and love. And in case you didn't know, by the way, DC's Superhero Girls also has a shrinking character called Bumblebee as well. Now, this would also try and block the sale of Bumblebee toys for DC Superhero Girls and everything. Now, let me ask you this. Do you ever think in a million years you were going to confuse a Transformer with a African-American young Bumblebee girl who is a teenager that can shrink down to size and has enhanced strength? Likely not. And I don't think you're bringing your kid to the store and you're showing your kid a Transformer saying, oh, look, Bumblebee. And they're looking for the DC Superhero Girls character and they'll go, oh, that's the same. Kids, no. I mean, I have a three-year-old and he can tell the difference between his toys already. He knows which toys are which. Kids know when they go to buy a toy which Bumblebee they want. Do they want the DC Superhero Girls Bumblebee? Or do they want the Transformer Bumblebee? This, to me, is the most ridiculous lawsuit that I've seen in a long, long time. Hasbro, come on. There's no way there's going to be confusion here. If anything, this feels like sour grapes to me. I'm going to be completely honest. I mean, DC Superhero Girls toys, let's face it, they fly off the shelves. You see them in stores and There's always empty racks, at least that I've seen personally, of DC Superhero Girls toys. And Bumblebee is a part of that. And Transformers, let's face it, their cinematic universe hasn't been doing so well lately. So the toys not necessarily flying off the shelves like they used to be. I mean, Transformers still do very, very well, don't get me wrong. And the comics are very, very good. But as far as movies go, and even animated series to a larger extent, Transformers not on the top of the hill like they used to be. So, I mean, this just feels like... Sour grapes to me, there's no way. Come on, you're not making this confusion, and I really hope that this thing doesn't go very far. And here's another piece of knowledge that I'll drop on you. DC had a character named Bumblebee in 1977 in Teen Titans run. This predates the Transformers 1983 Bumblebee character, which was introduced when Marvel had the comics rights to Transformers. Now... Here's another little bit of knowledge for you. Hasbro actually was granted a trademark for Bumblebee. So they do have a trademark for the name Bumblebee that happened in December of 2015. DC Superhero Girls began in October of 2015, which predates the trademark. So to me, as I'm just looking at this on the surface, we don't have a legal analyst on the show or anything, but on the surface, it looks to me like There's no merit here. There's no way you're going to confuse these two things, first of all. Second of all, you have two instances where the Bumblebee that DC owns predates the Bumblebee from the Transformers universe. And again, not to be confused at all. And there are other character names that 
that cross different uh, that cross different companies, and you don't see this kind of stuff happening hardly ever. So I don't understand why this is even a thing. Maybe it's just to make headlines. I don't know, but I hope this goes away soon. One thing that's actually coming back, and this is great, great news for cord cutters. According to Deadline, the CW Network has agreed to allow live and on-demand screening on the new Hulu Live service that's going to be coming out. Why is this a big deal? Because let's face it, Hulu and CW didn't really get along last year. CW is pushing their CW app to watch their shows on for obvious reasons. They've got their own ads they can run. Well, now this deal apparently would eliminate the last five episodes deal for on-demand viewing, so you would actually be able to view episodes throughout the entire season. Now, there's no word on which markets would actually get this live streaming. Anytime you do something like this, you have to have individual market deals and stuff like that, so there's not necessarily... This isn't necessarily for everyone right now as of the story that we have right now. Now, the service, of course, you know, if you have Hulu Live, costs $39.99. There's other services. They already have deals with... Um, YouTube TV, live TV. They've got deals for that going on with the CW already. So this is a big, big deal, not just for cord cutters, but for Hulu itself. They needed the CW. I mean, Arrow, Supergirl, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow. We've got Black Lightning coming and so many Riverdale, so many more shows. There's a lot of hype about CW all the time. And Hulu did not want to be left out in the cold with that because this is the next battle. Here, the next battle is who's going to win the cord cutters. Is it going to be Hulu? Is it going to be YouTube? Is it going to be somebody else? So if Hulu didn't get this deal with the CW, it would have been a lot bigger deal than it seems like on the surface. But it's done now, so it'll be very interesting to see how this affects things going forward. It's no secret that Marvel has had a very, very tough time with the Inhumans TV series recently. A lot of fans have been critical of it. I've been critical of it on the show in the past. And this is, to me, this is just another log on the fire, man. So they released a new, they released some new promo images and a new trailer for Inhumans, which of course is coming out in IMAX on September 1st on ABC on September 29th. And Medusa has been a big part of this. The hair looked awful in the first trailer. And then it looks like they fixed it. And when, just when you thought it was done, this was it, right? It was all over. This is done with. No. So now we see that Medusa has her head shaved. What the hell, Marvel? I mean, come on. It's like you weren't good, but at least you it made sense. Her powers come from her hair. This is a big part of the character. And you're going to take it away? It just doesn't make any sense. And to even show that to us now, and what are you doing? Make that one of your stingers in the show, because obviously she has her hair at some point, right? So now you're going to shave her head? I know that at one point in the comics, I can't remember when it was, but I think it was maybe in the 90s or something in Humans, where Maximus does shave Medusa's head at one point. So maybe that will be a part of the coup that's clearly going on, but... And if that's the case, to waste that now, to give that away now, seems like that's a huge plot point for me. And that's that's a big wow moment if that actually happens. Whether you're a Marvel Comics fan or not, if you're just a general interest fan, that's a big moment that you're just throwing away in a trailer. And that's one of the things I hate about having all these trailers is that you have these throwaway moments. And especially there's been such a big deal about this particular character and her hair, and it's like, I know how we can solve it. Let's just get rid of it entirely. That way, nobody can complain about it. Well, guess what? We're going to complain about it because it is a big part of the character. And how many times do we hear that about a lot of different things when it comes to casting or what have you? There are certain aspects of characters that this is a big part of their character. And Medusa may be the biggest part of her character, other than being the damn queen, is her hair and you take it away. It just doesn't make any sense. Will this doom the show entirely? I don't think so. I'm still going to watch it. I'm still going to give it a, a nice fighting chance. But every new thing that comes out about Inhumans has me shaking my head and wondering, what are we doing here, guys? 
But one show I'm looking very much forward to coming back is Mr. Robot. Of course, season three starts on October the 11th. And you know what happened at the end of season two with Elliot getting shot and what's going to happen there? Is he going to survive? Well, come on. I mean, you know he's going to survive. I mean, I know that that was a nice cliffhanger. It was a nice wow moment. But, I mean, really, where would the show be without him? So we see this new trailer that came out from The Hollywood Reporter first. And it looks like people are starting to become aware, like Angela's kind of becoming aware that Elliot is two people. This split personality thing is the real deal. It looks like more than just a couple of people are starting to become aware of this. Is starting to become more public knowledge. So how does that get dealt with going forward? And, of course, we see the war between Elliot and Mr. Robot really, really, it looks like it's going to start to ramp up even more than it was. I mean, I say that and maybe your response is it wasn't ramped up before because it really sure as hell looked like it in season two that it was ramped up. Well, this almost feels like we're building to a conclusion between this battle between Elliot and Mr. Robot. And even in this teaser trailer, I'm kind of getting the feeling that somebody wins that battle coming up in season three, where they go from there. I'm not sure. It also has to do a lot with what happens with stage two. And does that get stopped? Does E-Corp actually come down? And then you have the extra added little nugget of the FBI closing in. They had Darlene in season two, remember? And now we have the whole Dark Army versus F-Society. It looks like the Dark Army has fully turned on F-Society now and starting to pick them off one by one. So there's so many you-don't-know-what's-going-to-happen moments that lead up to this season three premiere. And then you get towards the end of the trailer. And this stood out to me. I don't know if this stood out to anybody else, but it stood out to me. What in the hell is Elliot doing coming out of the E-Corp building? Did you notice that? It looked like he was actually coming out of the E-Corp building. I don't know if he was going up there to visit Angela or what's going on. But you see the protesters out front. Something there just seems like... That is going to be a big, big moment coming up in season three because that, I mean, that's who you're fighting against at the end of the day. And that's who you're trying to take down. What was he doing there? And does he have an angle that he's going to be working on his own now? And is that Mr. Robot or is it Elliot? That is the constant question. And hopefully we'll get those answers, at least some of them, coming up in the season three premiere on October the 11th. Finally, let's talk about the Shazam movie, which is starting pre-production. Of course, we're looking at a 2019 release date. We already have Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Black Adam. And now we know something that I think is very, very smart. According to Collider, they will not use CG and they will not use digital de-aging for a Billy Batson. They will have a young character that will be cast in that role for this movie. So you're going to have Shazam and you're going to have Billy Batson. That is a very, very smart move because how much criticism has there been, no matter how good the effects are on the CG characters and aging or changing a character with CG. I mean, Suicide Squad is a perfect example. Look at all the complaints when it comes with Enchantress and the villains on that movie. There are a lot of criticisms of the CG in there. So now DC saying we're going to go practical and David F. Sandberg, who's going to be the director of this movie, said, no, we're going to cast a young kid to do this. Now, I mean, it seems like lately we've been seeing unknowns or virtual unknowns being cast in this role. But I was thinking about this and looking at uh, Sandberg's resume, Gabriel Bateman, who was in Lights Out, which was also directed by David F. Sandberg, Looks like he could play the role pretty well. He looks like he's right about the right age. You know, the directors like to go with actors and actresses that they know. And he's worked with this kid before. It seems like something that the kid would be able to handle. So I I think that that is one angle that we could go with. And the new hot rumor is that Army Hammer is going to be rumored to be playing Shazam. And maybe that's going to happen. Maybe that's not going to happen. We've heard Army Hammer's name been brought up several times when it comes to the DC Cinematic Universe. So I don't know if this is a role that he'll end up playing or not. I know Dwayne The Rock Johnson's come out saying, yeah, it'd be great to have Army Hammer play. I mean, I, I honestly still don't think we can rule out John Cena. I know you've got Wrestler Wrestler. Maybe you don't think John Cena's a good actor or whatever. I, I think he'd do a fine job with Shazam. And, I, and you know we've got the history between John Cena and The Rock from the wrestling world. 
it, it might be a good promotional tool to put those two together. I mean, you're not looking at huge depth here from Shazam of all characters. I, and don't get mad at me, Shazam fans, okay? Let's not act like Shazam is this deep, like, Dr. Fate-esque character that has to have this huge depth or like Batman. Come on. It's Shazam. There's a little bit of goofiness there as well. And tell me John Cena couldn't play both sides of that coin. You know he could. So I'm not sure Army Hammer could play that other side, that a little bit naive side of Shazam. So maybe somebody like John Cena would be perfect for this. He's already got the build. I mean, it just seems to work for me. I'm not necessarily endorsing him per se. Maybe it sounds like I am, but that one seems to make a little bit more sense to me. So I just love the fact that they're not going to digitally de-age the character. They're going to go with more practical effects in a movie that's going to be full of special effects. So why spend your money de-aging an actor where you could probably spend less money and get a younger actor to just play the role of Billy Batson and be done with it? The only other concern I really have with this is David F. Sandberg is a horror movie director, okay? So he's stepping out of his comfort zone to do this because when I don't, when I think Shazam, I don't think horror. And, I mean, I know Black, Black Adam is a bad, bad dude, but I do not think horror when I think Shazam. So it'll be very interesting to see David F. Sandberg's vision of this movie. Maybe maybe he would have been better off with Justice League Dark. They just got new a new writer. I don't know if that's the route that maybe they should have gone. Maybe he'll take on both projects. Who knows, because they don't have a director right now. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to talk to the cast and crew of the Batman Harley Quinn animated movie that came out this week. I got a chance to sit down with a lot of the cast and crew members at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. We'll revisit that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. Warner Brothers in DC Animation this week released Batman Harley Quinn, which is their next animated movie. And I got a chance at San Diego Comic-Con to sit down with a bunch of the cast and crew from the movie, starting with Lauren Lester, who's the voice of Nightwing. And I asked him right off the bat, I mean, we know the contentious relationship between Batman and Nightwing over the years of time. So where are they at right now? What's the state of the relationship between Nightwing and Batman in this movie specifically? Oh, what's great is we're over all of our tension. It's over. You know, we, we had that whole thing, you know, where I slugged him and I knocked him down and all that. We're past that, and now we're, we're partners, you know, we work together. So, same thing. Exactly the same thing. If you're a fan of these movies, you know that Bruce Timm's been a big part of them, of course, part of the Batman animated series as well. So, I wanted to ask Lauren what it was like working with him again. What it was it like working with Bruce again after all those years? Oh, it was great. Uh, we really. All of us uh, uh, came together a year ago. It wasn't Bruce, it was, um, it was Paul Dini in that case. It was Paul, uh, myself, and Kevin. And we did a, um, a Viewmaster. We did an episode of the show for Viewmaster. Nice. And uh, the, VR the VR. Awesome, yeah. awesome. And uh, there we just, it was like we picked up right away from all those years ago. And it was the same thing with Bruce and with this, with this film. I was so lucky to get a chance to talk to Kevin Conroy about the movie as well, so I asked him what it was like to have a more comedic version of Batman. What's it like to lighten that up every now and then? I mean, you've played the character serious so many times in your career. What's it like to get a chance to kind of lighten Batman up a little bit? Oh, it's bit? fun. Oh, I have so much fun doing it because, you know, I don't get to play the comedy, really, because Batman is not a comedic character. Right. Know? But he gets to kind of deadpan it, and and that that's his version of, of comedy underplaying things and that's fun but um like in there's a new series we're doing justice league action i'm doing batman in that there's a lot of comedy in that and in that one i really do get to play more oh yeah definitely that's fun talking to the cast and creators of the batman harley quinn animated movie on the down and nerdy podcast this week up next it was co-screenwriter jim krieg and you know when jim krieg is involved there's going to be comedy so i asked him about the casting process for these characters as well when you guys were casting for this and i think that lauren mentioned that we were working with wes again in casting this uh what, what was the process what was that process like obviously you've got a new harley you've got some other new players in this so what did you think of the casting process for this one I personally, as the as the writer, I wasn't very involved in the casting. I mostly heard about it, um, and and ev- everyone who came in seemed like, yes, that's a good call. That's a good call. I don't really think about that when when I'm helping Bruce with the script. I don't think so much about the actors, but as the characters' voice and all of the actors really, um, really played to the strengths of, of, of Poison Ivy and and Harlequin and 
and Floronic Man, um, uh, and then brought something else along with it. The actor always can pluses what you do, so that it's it's always a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. I always want to take credit for it, but of course, it's really yeah. the actor. <laughs> <laughs> when you think Batman, you don't necessarily think comedy. So I wanted to ask Jim Krieg if there were any challenges in writing this script. Is there a challenge in writing a more humorous Batman script, or was your experience on Justice League action helpful in being able to do that? Um, for me, it is not more challenging to write a humorous Batman because I, 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 I like jokes, and, and I, my mind automatically goes to jokes. It's, in fact, it's harder for me. I don't want to unemploy myself from doing serious work because <laughs> but but i did a movie called uh the flashpoint paradox which is almost which joke was also fr- good it's thank you but it's almost joke free you know there's not a lot of jokes true in this thing. very true um but uh so yes i uh, you know justice league action helped me think about i knew what kevin could do comedically which he by the way loves to do and is super funny um but i would be hesitant i would have just jumped into this on my own because it's Bruce's universe. Oh, I just got tapped on the shoulder. Um, there has to be hilarious uni- little blips you can use in there. When I think nerd royalty, one of the names that pops into my head is Bruce Tim. So I wanted to ask him, especially with the villain in this movie, why Floronic Man? What made you decide to throw uh, Floronic Man into the mix? The Floronic Man, what's interesting is that um, we have done so many series and movies with these characters that uh, we've pretty much used everybody that you know is... is either top tier or interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Floronic Man is a character that I, 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 I never really even heard of the character until the, uh, the famous Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. And that was my first exposure to him and I really liked that run a lot. Um, so I thought, oh, Floronic Man, Poison Ivy, if they teamed up, that would not be good. So, um, so they, that, that's really the basis of it. Um, and there actually are some, some kind of um, Alan Moore Easter eggs that kind of relate to that. Very so. cool in the story. Speaking of the Floronic Man, it's hard to miss the legendary voice of Kevin Michael Richardson, so I wanted to ask him what it was like to voice such an intelligent character, especially with Poison Ivy in the mix. And Poison Ivy's a very intelligent character as well, so what was it like playing off of that? Oh, you know, unfortunately we never got to record with each other. You know, I recorded alone and meeting Padgett, who is just phenomenal talent, uh, and watching the DVD, watching the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it came out really nice. I thought it, you know, you know, both they're both green based, right? You know, they're both, right. you know, they're both in the plants. So uh, I'm wondering about what the real alternative is. You know, why they want to wipe out humanity? Do they want to grow a bunch of cush? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe not. No, maybe not. Yeah, you know, I'm part of the very I'm like, I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I apologize, yeah. DC. Um, <clears throat> you know, but you know, hey, 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 to each his own. If you had a race to Google to find out who Floronic Man was, I'm sure you weren't alone. I wanted to ask Kevin Michael Richardson about playing such an unknown character. Well, when you get to play a character like Floronic Man that has almost no history that anybody even knows about in the, in the mainstream, does it make you feel like, all right, I can really put my stamp on this character then? Yeah, yeah. It, it feels, I felt like I have. And if he was asked to, if I was asked to return to play him, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I really love playing that. He was good. I liked playing him. Finally, I got a chance to talk to the amazing Paget Brewster, who does such a wonderful job as Poison Ivy in the movie. And I wanted to ask her, she was going through her research, you know, what intrigued her about Poison Ivy? What, uh, what aspect of Poison Ivy's character kind of intrigued you the most when you were doing that research? This sounds very bad, what I'm about to say. I, I understand why she wants to do what she wants to do. I believe in her mission. Do I want to murder everyone on Earth? No. Right. But when she says, look at what mankind has done to the Earth, we need to return the Earth to what it was purely mm-hmm. before what is essentially, we're a cancerous species. Like, we have grown. There's too many human beings on Earth. That doesn't mean I want everyone to die. I, I, I think the same... <laughs> The other side of humanity, yeah, we consume too much, we create a lot of garbage, but we're also such an advanced species because of what we provide and create and do for each other. Right. So love and, and art and creativity and music and, and caring for each other is the reason why we should 
survive as a species. So mm. that's, even though Harley Quinn is crazy out of her mind, <laughs> she's right to want to protect even Poison Ivy, mm. who's going to kill everybody because she believes in her mission. She doesn't want to kill Harley Quinn, but they're, they're both right. Mm -hmm. So it is a little scary to say, I am... I, I, I am passionate about what what Poison Ivy believes in because I also believe in that, but I also believe in what Harley Quinn believes in right. in this situation. <laughs> so is that the duality of, of human? You know, I don't know, but I, 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 I we are hurting the earth, so I get it. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, I talk a lot. I'm so sorry. It's good. Oh jeez. All right. <laughs> It was so great to get a chance to talk to Kevin Conroy, Bruce Timm, and most everyone that was involved in the Batman Harley Quinn movie. And just really quickly, my quick spoiler-filled review of the movie. I got a chance to see it at San Diego Comic-Con, and one thing that surprised me the most was it is a straight-up, unapologetic comedy. That is one word. Funny was the word that was repeated, I think, most when I was sitting down with everyone was, was comedy. And then you see it, and you go, this is a straight-up comedy and it makes no apologies of it. And when Jim Krieg is involved, you should know that this is going to be a straight-up comedy. But at the same time, you look at a character like Floronic Man, who was way more menacing than I expected. I'm like, where has Floronic Man been in the DC universe up to this point? And teaming him up with Poison Ivy was a very, very smart move. I love the fact that they played up on Ivy's relationship with Harley throughout the movie. The scene where... Harley has sex with Nightwing was absolutely 100% hilarious. And then Batman walks in and kind of catches it. I mean, that's just funny. And maybe that's not your thing when it comes to a Batman movie, but it's almost like the one thing that was put out in your face the entire time was this is a comedy. This movie is supposed to be funny. And did all the jokes land? No, absolutely not. Not all the jokes landed. And there were some tense moments, especially with Harley. And you don't know if she does screw them towards the end. It kind of looks like she does, but it turns out that she doesn't. There's so much going on. And of course, you know, Batman is the perfect straight man, just like Kevin Connery was saying when I was sitting down with him. He is the absolute perfect straight man. So that's why this just worked for me. If I'm going to give this a rating, I would give this... Seven deadly plant viruses out of 10. I enjoyed it. I mean, maybe it's one of those guilty pleasures, but I enjoyed it. I would absolutely watch it again. And Melissa Roush did a good job as Harley. Was she the perfect Harley? Absolutely not. We've had perfect so much when it comes to Harley, but I think she did a great, great job. And I think that if she was Harley again, wouldn't bother me one bit. That's going to do it for this week's Down and Nerdy podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more of the show, you can always go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. That has links to everything we've got going on, including our social media pages, at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. We're at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram if you want to follow us there. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, and hey, be good to your fellow nerds.